Wait, was this actually released on September 29th? This movie? Yeah. Well, I don't know, dude. Don't don't get in your head about this. Don't start spiraling about exactly what day <laughs> it came out. Yeah, it says the 18th. So we're good. Okay, okay. thank God. Thank God, thank Ricky. God we saw <laughs> oh that. My God. Thank God we saw It has that. been a real surprise to me, I will say, over the course of this podcast, how much this aspect of it is important to you. Like, you are really fixated on, did it? Is it the correct day? And is it the correct week? Um, and I find that admirable and very sweet. <laughs> know where I am by the way the road looks look I just know that I've been here before I just know that I've been stuck here Mike I'm extremely excited don't worry everything's gonna be all right You men make yourselves comfortable. I'll be right back. She's cool, because it takes her a little while to get warmed up. It's normal, nothing kinky. <laughs> Where is my son, Scott? We don't know, sir. Hey, Mike. How long have I been here on the streets? On this crusade? All right, welcome to 30 Years Later. Uh, I'm a host of the show, Ricky Camilleri. Uh, joining me, as always, is the other host of the show. It's me, Chris Jaffin. Hello, Ricky. Thank you so much the- for it. I feel like... The the introduction was not negative this time, but it was scant. It was it just stopped very soon into the introduction. Well, I was trying to put your voice to your name. I didn't want to lend my voice to that your name. Scant. I wanted it to be authentic for you, Ricky. I do appreciate you making space for me as an individual to tell my own story, and I do think that's very important. That's what thirty years later is all about. It's what it's what we've learned over the course of thirty oh years is God. how to make space for for other individuals. Uh, today we are talking about 1991's "My Own Private Idaho," written and directed by Gus Van Sant, starring Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix, a glorious River Phoenix with glorious oh hair, hair that I have always been jealous of since I saw this movie. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, At one point he has like a crazy Elvis pompadour that is very tall. Yes. Uh also in the movie we have uh James Rousseau uh in a great part a small cameo by Jim Caviezel, which is very interesting that he is in this movie. Um yeah, right. as well as Gus Van Sant has a small part in the movie. Udo Kier is in the movie. And Fantastic. Flea, He's so good in this movie. Yeah. Flea has a part in the movie as well. Yeah, Flea uh, is like less good, I would say, in this movie. He's doing fine. He was I mean, a cool it, guy at the time. You know, that's yeah. all you can say about that. It was released October 18th, 1991. It originally went to the uh, Venice Film Festival, uh, received pretty good reviews, some rave reviews. It's become a cult classic, especially um, with LGBT audiences. I don't know if that's necessarily still the case, if it still holds up with those audiences, but um, at the time, it was a big part of new new queer cinema of the 90s, and it follows the exploits of um, two uh, male hustlers on the streets of Portland and Seattle, um and uh their exploits with a uh an older man uh who's obsessed with street kids and it combines uh Henry the 4th uh chimes uh, Orson chimes Welles and Shakespeare's yeah. Chimes at Midnight as well as uh Van Sant's own thing and and you know you say that I say that because a lot of the film is actually a hodgepodge of a number of different scripts that he had been working on over the course of a few over over like 20 years and he found a way to sort of bridge them all together as the financing for the movie was coming together. He was originally going to make it with the actual street kids that he'd been following and, and, and kind of documenting on his own and taking influence from two of them are actually in the movie, uh, which will in a scene we'll talk about later. Uh, but then Keanu Reeves became interested in the movie and then 
River Phoenix became interested in the movie. And what's interesting about that is that Keanu took the part of Scott, which was supposed to be the main part, but then the more, the more iconic role becomes River Phoenix's. And I think that's for a number of reasons that it becomes that, which again, we'll also uh, <laughs> maybe uh, talk about in we'll regards get into to it. We'll, we'll get into, we'll get it. into it. Yeah. But I think, I, I think first and foremost, um, you know, I first saw this movie when I was in high school, uh, I saw it in a movie theater. It was, uh, but it was like in the late nineties and it was showing at a, uh, a, the- a movie theater, a little, a local art house movie theater uh, in the town next to mine that I went to. And it was showing at like, you know, one screening at five o'clock. And for some reason I decided to go to it. I think because I really liked, I really loved Gus Van Sant because of Goodwill hunting. Cause I was like 14, 15 mm. at the time. Uh, and I still stand by Goodwill Hunting. I think it's a very good movie. Um, and I also really like Drugstore Cowboy. And so I went to see this and it totally blew me away. It's one of those things that when you're 15 years old and you see this, it takes so many sharp turns uh, stylistically that um, if you like movies at that age, it's like hard not to be inspired and thrilled by how many dangerous uh uh, dangerous aesthetics this movie is playing with and, and almost like seemingly at times trying to um, alienate the the viewer. And then I saw it again in the theater again, uh, probably like 10, 15 years later, loved it even more. And I, I would say I returned to this movie uh, every other year. I I truly love this film. Chris, what you really, is your... You, you, you watch it that much, do you? Yeah, I, and it's one of those things where it's like if someone hasn't seen it, I'll, throw, I'll, put, I'll put it on. Um... Chris, what was your first experience with this, with my own private Idaho? What do you remember? Yeah, so I have only seen this movie like one other time, I think, really, in the, in, in the sense of like sitting down to watch it. Um, so when I was 20, 19, 20 years old, I'm studying abroad in England uh, with some good friends of mine from college. And uh, we all were like into movies and, you know, we're watching, it's 2001, so we're watching what, like Mulholland Drive, we're watching, you know, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. We're watching like Straight Story, other things that are not David Lynch movies, but that's all I'm thinking of, you know? But we're watching like a lot of like avant cinema all the time. We're like staying up all night, smoking cigarettes, watching movies and like smoking pot and like, you know, talking about movies like all constantly, constantly, constantly. This is all we were doing. Sometimes we'd have friends come over and they would like be in the in our house and like uh they would stay up all night watching movies and we would go to bed and we'd wake up at, you know, six or seven and Evan is still sitting there watching movies. Um, but so this is, so these, this crew of us all went to England together and we were, would like, they, we were staying in this other university in England and in, in London. And we're like, they had a kind of VHS library, I guess, because it's 2001. And so we were like pulling out VHSs and watching them different nights. And so, yeah, one night, I think this was like, God, like the second or third movie we watched at night or something. And um, I definitely was like falling asleep a little bit when I watched it, but it was very like, you know, you mentioned how it takes so many turns. And I think at the time I was just so in this world of cinema, like that it didn't even really strike me as being odd or anything. It just seemed like this is what a independent movie is, is like, you know, and I'm not having watched so much nineties independent cinema, but by this point, but um, I mean, one thing I will say, and maybe I'm imagining this, but it definitely, if you watch this movie in a basement with four other guys at like two in the morning it's definitely like a vibe you know you're kind of like well i don't know should we all hook up with each other is it kind of boring that we're not all hooking up with each other and i think there was a little bit of that in the air um but nothing and nothing happened really nothing happened you know yeah you know when this movie was released apparent according to gus Vincent in a recent interview uh about the film it it almost like wasn't gay enough for glad and uh because glad had just come out and glad thought that this movie wasn't sort of pushing pushing enough buttons but because it became such a um an iconic film very quickly for for uh for queer audiences glad kind of a few years later was like actually it's really great we were wrong um (laughs) but what's when i saw this movie when i was 15 you know i'm straight and i come from like a fairly cis straight white background but for some reason, and I don't think I was really hip to to queer cinema yet at this time. I liked Gregoraki, but I also think that what I liked about Gregoraki or even John Waters was like the gross out violence stuff. And and what I liked about the the queer elements of those movies is that they sort of were a part of the transgressive nature of 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 the movies, right? Um, right I think yeah. in retrospect, when you 
when you talk to you know queer people who like those movies they are a celebration in some respects but they are also very transgressive and very reminiscent of like you know queer people who wear a shirt that say you know keep gay illegal or something like that you know or yeah, it's very different like ways of thinking right yeah but for some reason with my own private idaho i barely even recognized it as a as a as i mean i was kind of on the, when i was young i was kind of like agreeing with glad although i didn't know i was i didn't even really recognize it as that much of a, a, a of a gay movie right i, I mean, thought i thought like you know these guys are doing this for money and this one guy likes this other this other his, his friend that he's with he 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 loves him and he's jealous, but at the same time, it wasn't really getting into it, even though it opens with River Phoenix getting a blowjob by a man. <laughs> right. And then there are several other sex scenes between men. And I know. Very frank discussion of having sex with other men. And like, uh, there's a love story between two men. It's like one of the central parts of the movie. But I think that it, I think it's kind of like the way that I was dis, the way that I, I think I was desensitized to what I was watching when I was young. You right, know, like right. I could watch anything and be like, that was great because I liked this part of it and not be shocked. Or if I was shocked, I liked that I was shocked. Whereas now I don't, when I watch something or if I watch my own, if I rewatch my own private Idaho, it's like, oh, yeah, this is pretty. Yeah, this is this is this is queer text. This makes it makes sense that people would 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 latch on to this. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's queer text in that way that, like, um, you know, like Dennis Cooper or like uh, even did you what's what's the Michael Sh Werewolves in Their Youth? You ever read that Michael Shabon book, Werewolves in Their Youth? No. This kind of like queer stuff that's like, I mean, Dennis Cooper is a little different, but it's like, um, I don't know. It's just kind of I don't know how to say this, but it it, it, it treats sexual and romantic feelings between men not as like anomalous or rebellious but like as natural kind of you know i mean maybe that's not really dennis cooper all that's more werewolves in their youth but so it is easy to look at it and just like you're saying like not read it as being like about being gay quote unquote or in all caps because it's just about people you know and if i can read this little bit of this roger ebert review of this movie um he says, it's the strangest thing. Here's a movie about low-life sexual outlaws, and yet they remind us of works by Shakespeare or Dostoevsky, not William Burroughs or Andy Warhol. Maybe that's because Van Sant is essentially making a human comedy. Um, blah, 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 but blah, blah. I, but I, But I would agree with that, and I would also say that about the drug use in the film as well. It's also, not they're not just sexual outlaws. They are drug addicts, yeah. most of them, right? They're, they're constantly like looking for dope to snort, and 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 money to get it and you know one of the things that uh the reason that phoenix's character is a narcoleptic in the film is because one of the guys van sant was following around who was kind of his tour guide in this world while he was doing research he said he was falling asleep all the time or always looked tired it's like buddy that's, no, he's on heroin dude he's like, on a heroin yeah like he's but not i think I, yeah. I think he probably knew that and was like well how boring is it to watch like right. he had just done drugstore cowboy how boring is it to like to to do that like let's 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 give this film life and i think he does the same thing with drugstore cowboy right it's about drug addicts but that's a comedy that's filled with life about these characters it isn't this like tr like you know neo-realist tragedy that's just like you know watching people shoot up and being like look at how tragic and sad this is yeah. and the same thing goes for all of the sex acts in this film like you can assume you actually you don't have to assume because the scene where we actually meet two men who were are from the street that are put into the movie is in a is in a diner and they're ta speaking straight to the camera and they're telling horror stories about these are the their guys first that were states. Yeah, the guys that were supposed to be the leads in the movie before these movie stars got interested, right? Yeah, yeah and like you and said, they're, they're telling these horrible stories about being raped and that yeah. and like that's what led them into into a lot like their life of hustling at that point. So we know that this ex this danger exists for them, but the movie. I guess someone could say that that's, you know, that's gutless for them to not focus on that. I would say that it's, it, it provides these characters with more dignity than, than only focusing on that. Who needs to only focus on that? We know, we know that it's dangerous, but they also have like lives and senses of humor and, well, and yeah. things outside of that. So I watched some like behind the scenes stuff. I guess there's like a whole behind the scenes making of movie that's on the DVD or whatever. Um, I had to have watched that, but I forgot completely. I'm, I'll cut myself saying that. They're talking about how 
specifically like Gus is not trying to tell the story of like looking for the tragic aspects in these people's lives. Like instead what he's trying to do is say like, when this is, when you are a person like this, like a, a hustler like this, like, what are you doing the rest of the time? Like, what are you doing to like get through the day? What do you joke around about with your friends? Like, and that's what so much of the movie is so much of this one section of the movie is is the guys like sitting at the diner showing off their clothes to each other like doing drugs or like figuring out how to get drugs and like you know just kind of doing whatever you know and and that is really interesting and it makes it so much more human because that's so much of your life do you know what i mean like that's the experience no matter what you are like you know yesterday i was watching these instagram live videos of alec baldwin and like okay alec baldwin's a movie star he's insanely rich blah 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 but it's like in all these instagram live videos he's just sitting on his porch in the fucking suburbs and like birds are chirping around him and it's just like his life is no different than a million other people who live in the suburbs you know what i mean like this is life this is being alive it's all this other stuff and that's what the movie is about you know well, it's like you said, it's like they're talking, they're bragging about clothes, they're falling in love, they're complaining, they're like partying and doing drugs with each other, they're joking around, like, it's not all, and like, I think that the reason that the movie stands the test of time and remains a classic that people go back to is because it's not that tragedy, you know, we, we've seen that, in, like the Basketball Diaries is not a classic that people go back to, people watch it because Leonardo DiCaprio is in it, but it's not a great right. movie because it tells an obvious story about drugs. Beautiful boy with Timothy Chalamet. No one's going to watch that. <laughs> yeah. Never watched again. it the first time. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. We get it. Drugs are bad. I think even Requiem for a dream. Like I think that movie's kind of over. I, don't I think it's think over it was- too. I think there was a certain time where it was like a big shock movie, but if you're under a certain age, like you don't fucking care, you know, like maybe you've seen it once, like just to see it. But like, I, I don't think it's a hugely influential film. No. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, with that movie, the filmmaking is very fun. Um, yeah, he's having a he's having a good time doing a lot of crazy shit in that movie. Yeah, yeah, but the story itself is just so relentlessly bleak with nothing else to add to it. it like, why why do I need to watch this? Where there is so much more life in my own private Idaho, and we're only like you said, we're only we're still only kind of talking about the first act of right, the movie. Yeah, there's a bunch and then, of it, and then Bob shows up. <laughs> Right. And then the movie completely takes a turn into becoming this, yeah, like you're saying, this faux Shakespearean, you know, Orson Welles aping kind of story about a gang of street youths being organized by this charismatic older figure. And you, so you mentioned this is a, the movie's an amalgam of a bunch of different projects that Gus Van Sant was working on. Um, so this one was called Minions of the Moon. And it was a full screenplay about this world. These kids, you know, for lack of a better analogy, it's like uh, Oliver Twist, right? It's like a Fagin and all these kids, you know, following him around and they're all gay hustlers and they're all speaking in this Shakespearean tone to each other. And it's very, the first time I saw this movie, I was extremely surprised that this happened at this point in the movie, you know? Uh, you say that they're all gay hustlers. You know, we learned that Scott's not. He's, I mean, he's doing this as like a sociological experiment despite his wealthy father, who's, I think, the mayor, right? Yeah, he's the mayor, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a sense that some of these other guys might not be as well. And this is, you know, their they're lives, like on, these are their lives on the street. Yeah, they're just like, thieves or just hanging out on the street or something like that right yeah i mean part of it was inspired by this documentary in the 80s called streetwise which is um one of my favorite documentaries uh that mary ellen mark i believe her name is uh worked on with uh the director i can't remember his name but it's this beautiful lyrical documentary about street kids in seattle um and he loosely based it that these characters are this tone on that movie and you can really see it here, but those characters, I mean, there were women and, and women, girls and boys in that movie, and it wasn't ever really, I think they were mostly straight. I mean, as far as what they said to the camera. Um, but here, yes, River Phoenix's character, we learn, is gay. And there is, you know, the the in the adult bookstore, the adult book and movie store, there's all the, the gay mags that, that they're all on in that very surreal scene at the beginning oh of the movie. I love they... this. Yes. Talk yeah. about this, Ricky. This is fantastic. And this is one of the, the movie is obviously very loose and is doing a lot of interesting stuff, but this is one of the only like really, really 
I don't know. I don't want to say it's out there, but it's like a pretty silly idea that they're seeing through a hundred percent, you know? Well, the, the camera like starts from outside, uh, an adult bookstore, um, or movie video store and like sort of moves inside. And as it gets inside, it comes across this magazine rack where all of the sort of like male hustlers that we've met or that we're going to meet in the movie, either have or are going to meet in the movie are uh, posing on the cover of these um, uh, like gay porn mags. And uh, suddenly they start talking to each other and like making fun of each other and joking around. And then they really start addressing Keanu Reeves as Scott and Keanu Reeves in pure Keanu Reeves fashion, you know, looks at the camera and says, it is true. I am just doing this until I can get my father's money. And when I get it, I'll be done. Like it's, you know, I'm paraphrasing the dialogue, uh, but it's it's very much in Keanu Reeves. And anytime Keanu Reeves talks in this movie, it's very much Keanu Reeves. It's, but I mean, this scene is so great because they're all, it's like they're standing on the, it's like they're the cover of the magazine and it says, you know, like hot abs or whatever above them. And they're doing these really silly poses with their shirts off, but they're talking in these poses. Um, and it's just really ridiculous you know and i don't know like you said they're on the cover of the magazines like i didn't even really know i or i didn't read it as like these characters would be on the cover of a porn magazine it's just kind of like this device that the movie is using for a kind yeah. of you know, to have fun right uh, yeah i don't think they're necessarily it's necessarily saying that these guys are on the cover of magazines i think it's mostly yeah it's a way of introducing these characters and there's also people yelling and talking in those scenes who are not characters that we'll see in the rest of the movie right, right? right they're yeah. just guys on magazines um i think it's mostly just a way of presenting uh all, all these guys but who knows i mean who knows if they you know do what did end up on the covers every now and then i don't know yeah i mean i don't um, know right yeah yeah but going back to the shakespeare thing um you know, apparently, and I just read this, uh, <laughs> just coming in, breaking news from Wikipedia. I just read this. <laughs> Motherfucker. Uh, some New Line executives didn't like the Shakespeare scenes and they wanted uh, Gus Van Sant to remove them, but foreign distributors wanted as much Shakespeare in the film as possible. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Um, oh my God. Well, so this is another, I mean, this is another place to kind of talk about this. So, Right. So there's this whole section that's this Shakespeare section and it recurs later on a little bit. Um, and the movie is these three projects put together. So one of the funny things about this movie is like um, Gus Van Sant. So I was watching this interview with him and he was like, OK, so I had gotten a, a Macintosh, which at the time was very new. And I used every font that was on there to write the script, which was only 70 pages. And it has all this like like and then I watched this documentary and it has shots of it. And it does have these like like the scene heading it'll say like portland at the top but like every letter is like a different font you know and it's like kind of like sprawling across the whole page and then it starts off it's like a novel there's like six paragraphs of like exposition and like writerly stuff and he was saying it was one of the things that made it really hard to sell as a project was they had he had like a 70 page script with like 40 different fonts in it that was doing things that a script, especially at the time, did not really do. You know, it was not formatted properly in any way, shape or form. Um, but like, I don't know. I just think that's so fucking weird. But then apparently the movie doesn't follow the script at all, actually, is one of the things about it. Um, even though it's like right. such a foundational part of the story of the movie. Right, because he was trying to emulate or at least he was inspired by Burroughs's cut up ideas. Right. So it was like, like you said, taking these three different stories. And then, I mean, obviously that translates to a different thing while editing, though I do think the movie does end up landing in three parts. I think so. Yeah. 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 Right. You have the first part where we're introduced to these characters um, and, and we see them going back and forth from Seattle to Portland a little bit, hanging out in Portland. And then Bob shows up and we get the, we get the middle of the movie where Bob is there and we get the Shakespearean part of the movie. And then we get the last act of the movie where they go hunting for River Phoenix's uh, mother and um, come across James Russo in what I think is such an amazing performance out of nowhere in this movie. And the fact that that's also the only straight man in the movie, 
uh, right? Like that's the I believe that's the only straight man in the movie. Wait, what except part for, of the movie except for Keanu Reeves? What part of the um, movie is this? What are you talking about? River Fiend, River Fiend, River Fiend. Oh, his brother. dad, his dad, or Sla- brother slash dad. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh my god. Right. And he's just like all filled with bullshit about ma- masculinity and filthy ideas the past. drinking a can right? of beer. <laughs> but he's like totally lying to himself and like. You know, even Counter Reeves is like, this is fucking this is a bunch of bullshit. Um, but that's the only straight man that we meet in the movie. And I think we also are supposed to infer a little bit at the end that Keanu is kind of, I mean, of course he's like fluid in some way, but like the man who like identifies as straight is like trapped in like this sort of like mental prison of his own making where everything in his past is fantasy and he can't admit to any of his mistakes. And he's just drunk and alone in this, in this like coffin, like trailer that is a disgusting mess. But I mean, I think you're talking about like the way the movie lands in different parts. And I think it, it, this device you were talking about before of um, River Phoenix's character being a narcoleptic is uh, it actually really works in in a way for the movie because it's like he falls asleep and then we just cut to a new thing and he's in a totally new situation and he just has to learn the rules of that situation that he's in and then at a certain point he falls asleep again and wakes up somewhere else <laughs> and it just it I mean it gives the movie you know like a quote unquote dreamlike quality is like the lazy way to describe it but like it is like that where it's just kind of like, and, and I think that that the connecting parts of those, those stories are not interesting necessarily. So I do like that the movie is just skipping to a new thing that it thinks is going to be, you know, inform the, uh, the arc of these characters and tell you more about the world. And it's not worried about like, Oh, they rode a motorcycle from Portland to Idaho. And like, how long did that take? And like, he was asleep the whole time. Like, you know, none of that makes any sense, but like who fucking cares? You know, it just works. Right. He also, does it so much in the first part of the movie, like has River Phoenix's character narcoleptic out, you know, fall asleep in the middle of something that it allows him to sort of jump even more later in the movie. Like suddenly they're in Italy and it's like, you can buy that because what, what is he going to do? Show you, show you him falling asleep again. Yeah. Right. Right. Like you've already seen it happen four times in the first 20 minutes of the movie. Like you You very much accept that he is a narcoleptic. He falls asleep all the time, you know, fine, 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 fine. Um, I also love the soundtrack of this movie. Um, the, all of these sort of old Eddie Arnold songs, you know, cattle call. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I was driving around Montana last year, um, I like one morning I like stumbled across this country station that was just playing music like Eddie Arnold, like cattle call. And it was so awesome. I was just like <sighs> cruising rules, down dude. these like long ass roads in the middle of like farmland and ranches and like hearing the song. And all I could think about was this movie. The mixture of, um, of music in this movie is crazy though. Cause you have these old country songs that apparently came up mostly because that he could get the rights to them. <laughs> and they sort of uh, also, you know, inferred this idea of like old of America and the West and traveling out West and being lost on the road. But then you also have Madonna's cherish, which plays in the, oh my God. the diner while these guys are going over telling their stories of playing of their during rape. their rape stories. Madonna's yeah. cherish is playing, which is amazing. What an amazing choice. You have an Elton John song, Blue Eyes, that plays at one point. You have the Pogues at closing the movie oh, out. Well, that's just so, like, that's so, so on the nose for a, a cool movie in 1991, right? Like, yeah, especially because the song's called The Old Main Drag, and the whole movie is kind of about, like, a main drag that all these guys hang. I mean, it's kind of about that. And it's about that in as much as it's about Shakespeare, I guess. And no matter where he goes, even when he's in fucking Rome, Italy, he's still somehow on a street corner surrounded by a bunch of guys, you know, waiting for a car to pick them up. It's like, I mean, like they fucking say in the song, man, somebody get me off the old man drag, you know, just can't get off, you know? So the general gist of the movie now that we're 30 minutes into this podcast i guess yeah, and damn like near you, the end of the episode i think yeah. most people have gotten it but you know we meet river phoenix we meet keanu reeves they're hustlers river phoenix is a narcoleptic there we we meet the sort of crew of people that they hang out in hang out with we see the 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 kind of customers that they have one of them is udo kier uh who who uh river phoenix is kind of scared of because he's a per he thinks he's too much of a pervert and a weirdo 
Um, and um, then Bob shows up, who is this uh, is the figure that you described, Chris. And they rob him, and then they go hunting for River Phoenix's mom somewhere. And uh, they secrets are revealed to River Phoenix about his family secrets that he seems to have already known. And then they go to Italy, where Keanu Reeves' character falls in love with an Italian woman. He comes back home, claims his 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 birthright uh, as the heir to his father, and takes his trust He's fund the money. The heir to being the mayor, you know? yeah. Uh, takes the trust fund money, and at the same time, Bob passes away due to a broken heart because he was he truly loved Scott Keanu Reeves' character, and uh, Scott uh, humiliates him in front of a bar of a, a restaurant of wealthy people. And um, at the end of the movie, we see two funerals, the one for Scott's wealthy father and the one for Bob. And the one for Bob is a bunch of, you know, old main drag street people in lawn chairs singing loudly and playing a um, playing a harps, not a harpsichord, a uh, a uh, uh, yeah, what is it? Is it a? I don't fucking remember what it is. It's like a ukulele, like a, a accordion. Is that what they're playing? Yeah, playing an accordion. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, while Keanu Reeves looks on and you get a sense that he will miss his old life. Right. Because they, for as crazy as they seem and they get crazier as they go on, they are like, they just seem alive and him and all his rich friends are being, they seem so dead. You know, they're so quiet. They're all in black. They're all sitting down. I don't, I, I disagree with that read of it. I mean, I, I think that it's more about individual, like he went to that world for a reason when he was young and he has denied that. And I see it as much more of like a, He's looking at his true self, not necessarily the wild side, not necessarily being wild, but what he, he ran away from that world for a reason and went to the street. And that was because that's where he, that that's where he felt most comfortable. But I don't think it's a wild thing. I think it well, might be. I don't be... know. I know. I, I don't, I didn't mean they're wild, but I do think it's like. I think it's a complex scene because you're not just seeing Keanu Reeves, like looking at these beautiful people who are living their true their true lives as their true selves. I think as the scene progresses, they get, uh, you know, crazier and crazier to such an extent where maybe they don't seem cool anymore, <laughs> you know? And I think that it's showing you, you know, all sides of that. Like not only are they, you know, alive and in touch with themselves, but they also are like a little bit out of control. And, you know, you can a little bit like, they seem like a lot, you know, like they yeah. seem like a lot. And do you really want to be living the rest of your life like that? When asked if he was worried that playing a gay prostitute would hurt his public image, Reeves said, hurt my image. Who am I? A politician? No, I'm an <laughs> actor. It's not a problem. This is what another really interesting thing about the movie is that suppose, according to what I heard on this documentary, like Keanu is the one who really wanted to do it. Like, you know, they, it was one of yes. these classic things where they asked the two Keanu and river and like, they just expected him to say no. And Keanu was like, really, really wanted to do it. <laughs> like he was, it was a, they said like, oh, he had just done an independent movie in Portland. And I don't know what movie they're talking about. I, I don't know if you know, but um, they were like, he really wanted to do, he had just started doing some bigger projects and he really wanted to do this, you know, which I just think is so fucking cool. I mean, at, at this point, like not just Bill and Ted has come out, but the second Bill and Ted movie has come out. Like Point Break has come out. Like he's doing these big, big, big movies right and he and he he's the one who talked river phoenix into doing it you think river phoenix is the cool one but like no actually keanu is the cool one hey mike how long have i been here on the streets on this crusade oh well i came back to town around three and a half years ago and that's when i met you so it's it's been it's been three years mike yeah almost four years that's a long time what I'm getting at, Mike, is that we're still alive. Yeah. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredibly obvious. <laughs> Yeah, hey, so at the end of every episode, we like to ask three questions. Uh, they all have to do with the fact that it's been 30 years since this movie came out. So, uh, to Are ask you my, telling that to the audience or to me? Because I know this. I, I was telling it to the audience, Ricky. This is called good, good broadcasting. <laughs> this is, okay. Um, yeah, so we, <laughs> we say, what is the most 90s thing? And usually we ask each other, but I'm asking myself because I want to say that you were talking about the music, and I think the music was one of the things that really struck me about this movie about 
like it was so indie culture so 90s indie culture the way it's because this movie has a little bit of this kind of irony that became such a huge thing in the 90s and like you know it goes all the way through to like ghost world or something and pete and pete on nickelodeon where it's this kind of this weird like forgotten culture stuff like the music and i know it does have its like mechanistic explanations like it was free and you could get it (laughs) but there was this thing where that kind of stuff popped up in a lot of indie culture movies and tv shows and album artwork and you know live performances in the 1990s and it was really interesting and it's one of the first times we've seen this particular strain of stuff in the show and i was like oh this is so cool to see this and like to get see the beginning of this zeitgeist start to come together the zeitgeist of the soundtrack yeah well like this do you know what i mean like having like old cowboy songs playing while somebody's standing by the side of the road like isn't that you know isn't that a thing from like peewee's playhouse to pete and pete to like my own private idaho you know being fascinated with music of the 1930s is like one of the you know it's like the plot of ghost world and i and i think and even the going to like they might be giants album covers there's this kind of like mining of 1950s 1960s stuff that becomes really really big in, in the early 90s do you like they might be giants I was there. Might be Ryan's publicist for like a year and a half. Oh, I think we've talked about this. I do not like that band. I know. I know they're real cheesy and they're for nerds. Yeah. Yeah. They see themselves as coming out of the art rock movement of New York in the 1980s, alongside people like the B52s and Devo, and that they were just doing their own version of that. You know. Fair enough. Yeah, I agree that the fandom around them is very toxic and very like, you know, it's not really toxic, but it's just very like. Irritating. Nerdy and irritating and off-putting. Going back to what you were saying, I don't, I don't necessarily see that, and I don't, I don't disagree with you because I think it's kind of like something that uh, you recognized as like almost like a personal experience of like things that were getting made around that time, and I don't think that so because I so I don't think you're wrong, but I, I'm having trouble like seeing the linkage there. Oh, between that and like it being a '90s kind of thing. Well, I don't know, that, man. It's just like, like cartoon and like, shows and like there was just this kind of weird near like starting off on a tight um, like a what would you call it? Like when the camera goes into a circle, but instead you're starting on that and then you're zooming out and there's like right. sepia tone over the thing and you're hearing in the background like yo lady, yo lady. I mean, that's just so like that is so 1990s alternative culture to me. A certain strain of it, you know? Yeah. Can I say my favorite part of the movie? Well, this was the most 90s part, but yeah, you can say your favorite part. If you Why know. would you start with the most 90s part? We always start with the favorite part. Because I, I fucking wanted to say this thing that you didn't even agree with. So like, I guess it was a bad idea, Ricky. But the thing that you said wasn't even that interesting. <laughs> it was interesting to me, you son of a bitch. Um, I think, you know what's the most 90s thing about this movie? What's that? Uh, and we haven't even really talked about it yet, which is the lore behind this movie of it being where River Phoenix started using drugs. And this is, and like often people saying that this is the movie where like he went method and it killed him. Um, which is just sort of like if you read the stories about behind the scenes, like maybe he was doing drugs, but him, in terms of being method, which is like not the case, they were just like two young actors working together who were friends and were like having a good time making the movie. Um, but Wait, there so was I don't this... I don't really know these stories. Like what? It's like him and Keanu started doing heroin together. Well, you know that River Phoenix dies just a few years later. Yes. Yeah. I um, at the Viper Room, uh, due to uh speed shooting uh shooting or snorting speed balls. I don't know, but speed balls. Um, mixing coke and heroin. And uh, right, a major this... part of our last movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on this movie, uh. It's 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 supposed that it's where River Phoenix started using drugs. That he was hanging out and doing research with lots of the street kids and was using drugs with them. Um, but it's kind of been confirmed here and there, and so the movie has been has been blamed uh, every now and then. But I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, who can say what? makes anybody do anything i i don't know and you know i mean i did see that 
River's agent really didn't want him to do it. It really didn't want him going in this kind of direction for things. Um, so I don't know, you know, maybe he wouldn't have intersected with a world like this. Although, come on, I mean, a young movie star in LA in 1990, like, I think you're going to end up doing drugs and it doesn't really, it's not really Gus Van Sant's fault. Right. It's fucking River Phoenix, Keanu Reeves, Johnny Depp. Not the most like sober group of people <laughs> yeah, in right. the early 90s. And like, a time when like, even though there is this, like the idea of being a drug addict or an alcoholic exists at the same time. It was like, nobody was really that worried about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but what I like, what, what I like about that story though, is that I like the idea of somebody hearing that and, and then tuning into my own private Idaho for some kind of like methody drug addict performance, like my own, like the basketball diaries or like beautiful boy. And then getting my own private Idaho and, <laughs> and being like, just, befuddled by what they've tuned into because it is so not that like there's in like his character is maybe a drug addict or he's just a person who does drugs. It's like, it's not totally clear. Um, Right, right, right. So it's I mean, not he doesn't like, exactly it, seem to be an addict in the movie, right? I mean, I know we've kind of been talking about this, but they yeah, do, just, they do they just are like people who do drugs sometimes to have fun. Yeah. You know? Like every now like some sometimes they find drugs and they're they're just doing them, you know? Um and having a good time. That's what it reads as. So, Chris, what's your favorite part of the movie? Oh man, I mean, this is so basic, Ricky, but like you just have to say, is it not a pleasure to watch Keanu Reeves and to watch Keanu Reeves interact with River Phoenix to a lesser extent, but like to watch Keanu Reeves in 1991, having so much fun making a weird movie like this and doing all these, doing all these things, playing all these scenes and all these different ways being the, like, I mean, I was thinking about this before the way you're talking about whether his character or River's character is the, the main character of the movie, quote unquote. And it is kind of like um, Keanu is like, you know, Dicky, he's like uh, Dicky Greenleaf, and uh, River is like uh, Ripley. You know, he's like Mr. Ripley. Like it's like he is the central, he's the driving force, and everyone is lusting after him constantly. But he is kind of aloof as a character in the, in the film, and you do get windows into him through these like kind of fourth wall breaking things that the movie does, and through some other stuff. But at the same time, he remains kind of like it's almost like there's an element that Keanu is bringing to it of like already being a movie star who is famous. And it's like, it's like everyone in the, all the characters are his fans. Everybody wants something out of him, you know, and he's kind of giving it or not giving it. Like there's a great scene where there's very emotional scene where river confesses his love for Keanu Reeves around the fire. And is basically saying he wants to have sex with him and he wants to make out with him. And, but Keanu's like, well, you know, I, I only have sex with guys. He doesn't money. say that he he doesn't say that he wants to have sex with him. He asks if he can kiss him and if he'll hold him. I mean, that's what's so heartbreaking about okay. that scene. All right, okay, okay, fine. You're right. You're right. You're right. But it, it's like, let's I, say, it's sorry, an honest. I, 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 you, but it's not like he's not like he's not he's, asking he's not like for suck sex. My dick or something, right? Yeah, no. he's he's like heartbreakingly asking to be held because they're on his way. Or have or have just come back. I think they're on his way to meet his brother, where to meet River Phoenix's brother yeah, yeah. slash father, where he knows it's going to be horrible for him. And but there's so an element of kiss him. There's an element of desire there too. I mean, with yes. we know we know this has been building the whole movie, and the way that he says, like, "I really want to kiss you right now." I mean, yes, it sounds sexual. like he wants to do more than kiss him. You know what I mean? Yes, it's sexual in nature. I mean, he wants to be with him, but he's not asking for for he's not he it's not he's not asking for sex right right he's asking he's he wants his connection reciprocated and he wants to feel connected yeah. to him you know and they've obviously at this point spent so much time together and yeah well what i was gonna say is there's a way the way this resolves is that keanu kind of like opens up his blanket and gives this amazing keanu smile and i don't know if he like actually says okay or something like that but that is the 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 general vibe it's just this very brief moment of like such pure keanu this thing the way that he like is like welcoming river into his like world via this little gesture and little smile it's it's amazing stuff dude it's it's really well he says he says um he says i only i i only fuck guys for money i'm not you know I, i i'm not gay and and river phoenix is like i know i know but and then 
there's like a quiet there's like a long pause and he goes come here and he like lets river phoenix basically cuddle into him and he holds him it's really sweet and 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 beautiful <laughs> i mean yeah i i am agreeing with you i'm agreeing but i'm just saying i'm a further identifying the like the way that keanu is playing that moment i just think it's pure keanu you know i think it's 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 exactly the kind of thing only he can do and it's really well done what's your favorite part of the movie ricky well, I'm going to cheat and I'm going to do multiple because I think we've we've missed a couple things. Please. Um, I think the hands down the funniest part of the movie is Udo Kier's um, song. Oh um, they meet up with Udo Kier a second time at a hotel room and they're trying to get they're trying to make money so that they can um, they can go to Italy because that's where they think River Phoenix's mom is, and uh, they they realize that the best way they can make some money is by hooking up with Udo Kier's character and Udo Kier is a auto parts salesman who used to be a performer. And in classic Udo Kier fashion, he does this, uh, sort of, um, burlesque style, uh, performance with a holding a lamp so that he can have like light up shining up on his face. And the song is something like sinking of power. Sinking of power every hour. Being in space, controlling the world with a different face. So strange. It's so funny. Um, uh, That scene, and I think, you know, it's not a part, but what I love about this movie is how many mediums and how many ideas are sort of colliding against each other at the same time throughout the whole movie. You have these super eight memories. You have, like we said, these, these, these old timey, uh, country songs. You have Madonna. You have documentary realism, where people are talking to the camera and telling their real stories about their yeah. dates. You know, there's you have, these like uh, really bright colored title cards that come up occasionally that yeah. tell you where you're going. Very 80s, 90s, independent movie stuff. The movie just feels so free and alive, and again, every stylistic choice is just a, a sudden. Um, it's it can be is jarring. And uh, I've watched it with people who can't handle it and sometimes and almost like don't even see that element of it. They're just like, oh, what's this Shakespeare stuff? They're not good at Shakespeare actors. And I'm always kind of like, who cares? Like, <laughs> I don't <laughs> like it doesn't matter to me that Keanu doesn't sounds weird doing Shakespeare. Um, yeah, who cares? But I just love how how much Gus Van Sant is throwing against the wall. Yeah. And 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 it, for me, it all sticks and it all lands and it, and it feels seamless but it also feels uh, like it's it's trying to jar you as as much as possible with like really alive and and hilarious ideas. Like even the even the the movie ends with "Have a nice day." <laughs> a credit card appears on screen that says "Have a nice day." This is a a project Gus Van Sant was really passionate about. I mean, the the story goes that he, this is what he tried to get made after his first movie and when he's first having his Hollywood meetings about what can he do. Instead, he ends up selling Drugstore Cowboy, which is like a huge success. And then he's getting offered like studio action movies. And he's like, no, I want to make my own private Idaho. And he's passing around this crazy font, 70 page script. And like eventually he got someone to, to make it, you know, and he's just you can just see how how much he's enjoying making this movie and how important what he's doing is is to him. But then at the same time, as much as this movie has been with him for so long, it doesn't feel like old ideas that he's been holding on to. And his, oh, like, yeah. it feels alive in a way that it's like, you know, he's apparently, you know, he had this costume designer that would come up with these great ideas for clothes and River really liked her clothes and Keanu didn't. And Gus Van Sant was like, that's fine. You just wear your clothes, Keanu. Like he didn't, there was no argument like and he had said that he learned that on drugstore cowboy like he didn't really know what his costume designer was doing and it wasn't his it wasn't his idea but the actors liked it so he decided to go with it 
because he trusted the actors. And so there's all these different things. And even the scene that is your favorite scene in the movie was apparently, you know, a three page scene that Phoenix then wrote his own monologue the night before and showed it to Gus Van Sant. And then him, Gus Van Sant, River and Keanu paired it down together and worked together to figure out River's monologue. And they, and that's what they shot. Right. So it's like he's had this thing that he's been working on since the 70s and he's still willing to show up on the day and be like, hey, that's a cool idea. Let's I mean, try that. It's or, so let's, amazing. It's, let's shoot. Let's shoot time lapse footage of the clouds, which apparently weren't the it wasn't the idea either. It was going to be they just cut to black when he fell asleep. But the 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 DP was just running off and shooting time lapse footage for fun. And then Gus Van Sant saw that footage and was like, oh, let's use this instead. I mean, like, that is so, like, there's just something so, like, selfless about being able to collaborate creatively in that way that I find so admirable to be, like, so outside yourself and so, you know, not caught up in, I mean, a movie director, right? Like, making everybody else do the thing you want them to do, where you're just kind of, like, exploring together and, and open and, and you don't have an ego in a way that it's getting bruised by somebody suggesting doing something different than what you wanted to do. I mean... I find all of that stuff really, really admirable. And I, I wish I could be more like that. Absolutely. It brings me to my next question, which I'm going to answer, which is what do you think we've grown out of? And I'm going to answer, I think that the marketplace, which film is always is almost by and large um, victim to, has grown out of movies where directors can feel comfortable really, really doing that. Money is and I'm you know this is a low budget movie so who am I to say that money was wasn't an option there but I don't think I think it's much harder for directors to feel comfortable shooting that much and um and allowing it I mean even when they were shooting that time lapse footage the studio was kind of like why is this guy shooting all this footage what are we doing right and yeah. then it ended up in the in the movie and I think now it would just you'd be hard to press to find a production that was able to just go off with the exception of like Tarantino who's got like a 90 million dollar budget it can shoot basically like five movies at once and then cut it down into one like i think you'd be hard to press to find um that many filmmakers who have the freedom to 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 be that mobile and and uh, fluid while in production right and i mean and i think that that bleeds over into you know, the con, I mean, obviously I know this is what you're saying, but it's like, that's why so many movies, especially smaller kind of fun movies have to be so tightly put together because you just have to like film the scene that connects to the next scene and then moves the story forward. And you don't have time to fuck around and find things. It's like, you know, it makes the movies less interesting. Yeah. What do you think we've grown out of? Well, I mean, one of the things you were talking about was uh, how, you know, Gus Van Sant did a lot of research into people like this. And a lot of the people in the documentaries I watched talked about how it was like a scene movie, essentially, you know, and it's a movie celebrating this, this world that Gus cares about and these people that he thinks are fascinating. And I think that it has this dedication to showing these people, um, in a, without labeling them or without, um, kind of having each character serve a purpose. I think they all have like, rough edges and they all like do things that are like kind of gross or like you're questionable or like that you um you know that are like off-putting in some way you know and i think that that's like slacker for instance that we watched i think that you know that's something that was a part of the zeitgeist at the time that really isn't anymore i think that you know sh showing a bunch of lovable oddballs who but also showing them as being like deeply off-putting in, in a certain way because that's you know true to life i think that that doesn't exist anymore i think that you if you're gonna go out of your way to celebrate a bunch of you know lovable freaks or whatever they have to be so sanitized and so lovable that like how in the world could anybody dislike these people you know there's just they're like saints basically but these guys are all fuck up weirdos you know and like they you know in addition to being lovable complete human beings you know Right, tragic or or like villainously manipulated into tragedy. You know, there'd right, have exactly. to be. A, that's a great point. Like, there'd have to be a victim, and there's no victims in this movie. You're not right? even clear if Keanu and River are like victims, even though we see them multiple times in these situations where they're, you know, maybe I mean, being victimized, but like maybe not. You know, they, I don't. They know. spend. They spend like their hero that they spend the most of their time with is. Uh, likes young men, yeah, exactly, right? He's right, an older yeah. man who likes young men. And it's like, that's 
kind of a, da- a dangerous idea, yet no one in this movie is portrayed as a victim. Yes, you get that one sequence in the in in the diner where they're you know they're actually talking about moments where they were victims of violence, but they're not their identities aren't that of victim their their identities are not solely built off of being victims of circumstance or victims in the street you know which is what makes the movie i think so much more compelling and fun and alive and long lasting um than almost any other movie about uh, 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 about this yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, a movie, I mean, it's like the Ebert thing was saying a movie about junkies and hustlers where it's not about like the tragedy, the seediness, the victimization. It's about like, you know, real complete people who are living their lives in this way for complicated reasons. And I mean, the diner scene you were talking about, it's almost like that scene has to be in the movie to give some kind of because the the people otherwise seem like so well adjusted in a certain sense. And even when they're telling these stories, which I mean, I must assume are like true or true ish because these are real people, real hustlers. They're kind of telling them in this way, the tone of voice that's like, Oh yeah, man, it was totally crazy until they get to saying like, and then he raped me, basically raped me. But you can tell that they're having a real emotion underneath that, but it is so like, male you know like it's so they're like brushing it off even while they're saying it and it's like you you have to have that to add some kind of deepening to the world in that way because otherwise the dude dudes are just being guys you know like hanging out (laughs) fucking guys for money you know doing drugs whatever you know just having a chill time um so do you love this movie or do you like it i love it i love this movie i think it's fantastic i think it's yeah we've had a string of pretty great movies recently right yeah, we've been pretty lucky, right? Yeah, I think so too. I, uh, between this and Ricochet, oh, and you know, we didn't mention it, but what a, uh, another classic came out this week, and that was Cool as Ice. I know, and, and in a way, a foundational text for this show, and we should have done it. But also, why? Also, why make ourselves do it? You know, if you listen to this podcast and you want to hear us talk about Cool as Ice, um, tell us, text or tweet at me text that you me. would. Yeah, right. If you're listening to this podcast and you wish that we had done Cool as Ice, tweet at me that you would support a Patreon of ours and we'll do it. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Great. Perfect. Well, but seriously, we had, we had, uh, City of Hope, Ricochet, uh, my own private Idaho. And then before, oh, then we had the Fisher King before that. Yeah. That one made you really, really mad. (laughs) That was not your favorite. That one made me so mad. But thankfully, we watched City of Hope right after that, which, which was is, kind of a great antidote. was completely the antidote to that movie, right? It was just like yeah. everything that other movie did wrong. Um, yeah, I'm a huge My Own Private Idaho fan. I will see almost anything that Gus Van Sant makes. It's been pretty hard the last 10 years because some of it's been not so not 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 so great but um you know the the film that he made with Joaquin his last movie where Joaquin was a, an artist in a wheelchair is pretty good um not great but i'm also uh, of the opinion that goodwill hunting is one of the best shot movies uh, ever made but i also i love van sant's output in the 90s up through elephant and last days i mean elephant I what an amazing beautiful uh strange I mean, dude, his his run in the in the '90s is okay. We've got Malanoche, Drugstore Cowboy, My Own Private Idaho, even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which is apparently not very good. I haven't seen it. To Die For, Goodwill Hunting, that's amazing. That's, that's amazing. a pretty incredible run. And then you have Psycho, Finding Forrester, but then you have Jerry, Elephant, Last Days, Paranoid Park, Milk. And then you have Psycho, Psycho and Finding Forrester. That's a pretty, you can't just gloss over those two. Like, <laughs> wow. Well, I like Finding Forrester. I think Finding Forrester, similar to Goodwill Hunting, has like a really, sh- this is going to sound so stupid, but has like a really strong color palette and looks beautiful. Oh my God, you're out of your fucking mind, dude. <laughs> Finding Forrester. I don't, it's not, it's not, it's not far from heaven, brother. Like, I don't think. The color palette uh, is one of the main draws to Finding Forrester. I think I, I think that you've never actually seen it. I have seen it. I have seen it. I think that you've never actually seen it, and maybe you don't know. What I haven't just about. been. I haven't just gone to you the man. You the man now dog dot com. <laughs> um, because I'm looking it up right now, and I and I'm willing to bet 
there's a pretty good DP on it. There's a pretty good. There's. A... I mean, I don't dispute that. I'm sure it had a good DP, but like, I dispute that it is one of the best shot movies of all time, or whatever it was you just said. I didn't say it's one of the best shot movies of all time. I said Goodwill Hunting is, but I I guarantee you, Finding Forrester. If you go back and watch it, you'll be pretty surprised at its look. It's shot by Harris Savides, okay. who shot Birds right. and Zodiac and Elephant. Like one of the great cinematographers who rest in peace. Rest in peace, yeah. An amazing, right. an amazing cinematographer. Yes, agreed. Yeah, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Bitch. <laughs>